You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Placemaking uh, Justice uh, session with M Pavilion today. Uh, I'd like to um, acknowledge the original custodians of the country throughout Australia and the peoples of the Kulin Nation as custodians on the land on which we meet today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay my respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Uh, today we're very whoops, today we're very privileged to have a panel of Australian Institute of Architects uh, industry thought leaders who will discuss and unpack what design excellence is within placemaking and the roles they play. Um, I will be co-moderating today with Monique Winwood on my right. She's a director of Wawawa Architecture and also a current Australian Institute of Architects chapter council. My name is Bill Criteris. I'm a principal at John Wardle Architects and also the uh, current Victorian chapter uh, president for the Institute. So the theme today, well, that's loud, is a placemaking justice. Um, so when what is equal uh, and what is just can often differ, can architects design to honour human rights um, of all people, but also the non-human rights of waterways, animals and the environment more broadly? Today our speakers are talking to specific projects um, that exhibit design excellence but also um, grapple with these very important um, issues around uh, you know, nuanced conversations around uh, inclusivity, diversity, empathy, value-driven outcomes. And then they'll be sharing their personal stories um, and how they have agency to influence um, within large groups and then smaller um, client groups and um, yeah, they're, they're pers what inspires them. And of course, all while acknowledging the undeniable climate crisis <laughs> that's on our doorstep. So just a quick introdu introduction to our fabulous speakers. Uh, thanks, Bon. If, we can, if I can start with Jocelyn Chu, she's uh, furthest to the end uh, and she's a director of city design for Melbourne City Council. She's also a past Australian Institute of Architects uh, state councillor at the national level as well. She's an architect, landscape architect and urban designer uh, with 19 years of experience across private and public sectors at all scales of design. Then Amy Muir, Director of Muir Architecture, lecturer at RMIT and at the immediate past Victorian President of the Australian Institute of Architects. And way to my right, who is a principal at Habel and has been practising architecture in Australia for 15 years and was also in Singapore for five years with Kerry Hill Architects and SSA, SAA Architects. And lastly, Ben Waters, who's the director of OSC uh, Architects um, and design leader at Melbourne University. Yay. <laughs> so you can start with Amy if you like. Yeah. 
Okay, first question is for, for Amy. Well, it's more a discussion around um, the Family Violence Memorial and the work that you've done on that. And um... Yeah, so this is a, um, a project which is a couple of weeks away from being opened that's located in the city of Melbourne. Uh, um, at the end of... It's called St Andrew's Place and it's at the end of Treasury Place and adjacent to the Commonwealth Building and Fitzroy Gardens. And we've been designing in collaboration with Openwork and Indigenous advisor Sarah Lynn Race. And the design has um, effectively evolved through consultation with working with the City of Melbourne and the Department of Premier Cabinet, Cabinet the Office for Women, uh, the Victim and Survivors Advisory Committee, Forced Adoptions Practices, um, because there's a, uh, an existing memorial within that park, and also the traditional um, custodians of uh, Wurundjeri, Bunurong and Bunurong. So the, the project um, is the result of the uh, Victorian... Um, uh, Royal Commission into Family Violence that concluded in 2015. And uh, the memorial sits within the park. And what was very important about this project was that it's a, uh, a project that allows for people to occupy the space and um, be part of that memorial. It's not an object in space. It's not a um, a monument. It's very much about designing a, a, a space that can be occupied um, for many. And in saying that as well, its role very much also is a signifier of the, the issue. So it becomes an education piece. It is uh, in its very nature when we talk about family violence, this is not a memorial for something that is complete. It's a memorial in motion. There is no line in the sand. We do not have any definitive statistics around family violence and the impact that it has on society. On society. And it's a societal issue that effectively is immeasurable. So this becomes a, a very important way of acknowledging a particular um, issue within society and also uh, in its very nature, it has to then be incredibly inclusive. Um, and so through the design, which is, I won't sort of talk too much about it, but just in very simple terms, um, talks to how um, we can basically provide a space that is a political intervention as much as it's a landscape intervention. Um, yeah. Thanks, Amy. Um, Way, I was hoping we could turn to you and uh, we talk about client empowerment and its impact on, um, you know, architecture and making spaces. I'm interested to hear from your end what, how you would go about it. Thank you. Oh, it works. Um, maybe I'll just uh, talk a bit about COVID. You know, through COVID, we kind of uh, realised that uh, nature is quite an important part of our well-being. And when we talk about clients, maybe perhaps it's thinking about um, who we are designing for. So I'm probably going to share with you a couple of stories. Uh, one is about three islands. One is about the river. And the other one is a closing of a road to make a new park for the, uh, no, for the community. 
Um, talking about the three islands, um, uh, I, I happened to be in Singapore where I was working on the second CBD of Singapore through a project called the Jurong Lake District Master Plan. Um, what it calls for is to consider uh, you know, uh, the, the site uh, which is within a lake formation. The history of the place is quite fascinating in the sense that you know, in the 1960s when you are developing in Singapore, everything is to reclaim. And within the lake itself, there are three islands. One of the islands got uh, reclaimed as a golf course. Hello, of course you do that. And what happened is it actually uh, disrupted the flow of the hydraulic of the, of the lake and therefore created clouding, etc., etc. So when we are working on the competitions, the first thing we did is to reinstate the third island back as an island to be what it was. And in that sense, uh, help with hydraulic, you know, returning uh, you know, uh, the forest to its natural state as part of the proposal. And we won, and I think you know, there's something that is to share. Um, and why am I saying that from Singapore? Not because you know, that it is um, a project of significance, but rather it's about, as a community or citizen of the world, how do we share knowledge and how can that be transferred back to where we are? So I'm going to talk about the river. The river, which is the Yara River, is, you know, historically we know all the issues and whatnot, but let's don't go into the depth of it. What is brilliant about the river, if you have not been, is at Queen's Bridge on, our, on the South Bank side, at the uh, eastern corner, that's where the waterfall is. Have you ever been there? It's pretty interesting because you can see but you can't touch. And I think there's a connection that we have uh, with nature that is uh, a missing part of uh, our understanding of uh, land, per se, or country. And in that sense, maybe I'll talk about the, uh, the, port, uh, the, you know, the closure of the road to, to, uh, to provide a park, you know, which is a project that we're working on at the moment. Um, we, we, again, we think about you know, uh, the client being the plants, the animals, the inset as a starting point, and people comes later. And through that, you know, we have not only closed the park, but introduced a, a, a planting strategy called uh, Miyawaki uh, Forest Technique. If you have not heard of, it's fascinating. What it does is that there are three phases. Phase one is three to five years. Uh, it allows growth by taking native species, throw on the ground, let it grow, survival of the fetus, and eventually, when you get to the fifth and third year, uh, 10 year, it will mature and you'll get the full effect in the 15 years. And what it is, is about understanding hydrology and what works on the site. And especially in that particular area, it becomes problematic. But we wanted to extend a little bit more into it by bringing some ideas of that through the uh, cavity of the, of the building, you know, by providing, uh, I, I would say, uh, landscape bowls. And the intention is, there's an intention of having a, you know, a rooftop garden. But if, you, if we aren't able to allow uh, the insects to hop to the top, they will never be there. So that becomes a very interesting strategy. Yeah, I feel like this is an amazing um, jump off point for Ben for you to talk about um, your work with the Ecological Research Institute that's been in collaboration with NGV sure. and... Um, yeah, talk about that as a placemaking as a process. Um. Sure, thanks, Mon. 
Um, look, this project was a competition that we worked on um, over the last year and a half, and it was a really large collaborative team, probably three to four architecture offices, a landscape architecture office, um, as well as ecologists and a series of other kind of cultural collaborators and inputters. Um, it was in Western Australia. It's actually for a university that's just on the outer suburbs of Perth um, in a really kind of sensitive and critical ecological context, um, sort of at the crux of a wet and dry land environment um, of remnant wetlands and remnant Banksia woodlands. Um, but I think one of the big takeaways that maybe can contribute to the conversation today was um, the way in which we approached something that we called the survey. And I think that this is really important for almost all architectural projects in a sense of trying to understand and analyze existing conditions. It's something that we do in almost all architectural projects. But um, we sort of took a, a broader scale view of the, the idea of the survey and tried to look at the scale of what we called the territory rather than just the site. And this was something that we sort of talked about in our brief conversations about today, um, the issue of boundaries and how we kind of think beyond, you know, traditionally defined boundaries and, um, and definitions of site to understand existing conditions. Um, but that idea of existing conditions sort of is a little bit more complex when you start to talk about this concept of place. And um, what maybe we sort of found and what I think is really important is that place is something that is established as a collective. It's a, it's a kind of concept or a notion that's established collectively, not necessarily individually. And it's also um, established across time. So it's not something that you can necessarily create um, immediately or directly like a building. So there's some complexities there. Um, I suppose what we found by looking at the survey was that we changed the way in which we were kind of analyzing and documenting and recording site. We, we did traditional methods like photography, um, site plans, um, but we also recorded stories. Um, we walked through the landscape and recorded video. And we also, and it's something that we do um, a lot with another kind of platform that I work on called SI Projects, which is sort of apply more advanced digital mapping methods to design process, which includes LIDAR scanning. So we were sort of looking at using LIDAR scanning and photogrammetry and drone sort of applications to really broaden our understanding and our access to um, the site and also our, our knowledge and our recording and documentation of the site. So um, I felt like that, in a sense, kind of informed what I'd maybe call a like a just placemaking process rather than having an outcome of, of justice. But um, I think that maybe that's important for us, certainly the learning from that competition. We came second. I don't know if I said that, but we joined, we joined the list of all of the great buildings that come second in competitions. Um, but I think the big takeaway was um, the fact that we can be really attentive. I suppose our responsibility as architects is to be attentive and be aware of the layered meaning um, and the layered conditions of the context that we're working in um, and understand this idea of place as not a physical thing but a kind of um, intangible thing that is based on meaning and senses of belonging um, 
which we, we tried to unpack in the process. Thanks, Ben. Um, I'd love to circle back later about the blurred boundary uh, scenario and what, you know, how that occurs to make great places, but we'll, um, maybe we'll allow Jocelyn to jump in now. So, Jocelyn, uh, we're keen to hear from you about um, City of Melbourne initiatives and uh, how you deal with inclusivity and also uh, the creation of you know, great spaces and advocacy for everything beyond just the project itself. Great, thanks Phil, and um, Ben's provided me a beautiful segue to go into, so I really like that um, being attentive and aware of the different layers um, uh, that come to play um, in design. I'm going to, I'm not going to talk to you about a specific project because I think the beauty of working at council is what council does to set us up for all of our projects and in particular our projects with um, the private sector and um, other government partners um, as well as, you know, as other um, project partners. So I want to talk um, through three mechanisms that help us to address this um, theme of placemaking justice and which also help us to listen to really listen to the different voices that need to be heard and some of those, you know, uh, some of those things, they're not human. They don't have a voice that we necessarily understand so we have to rely on research or people who, you know, can, can give us um, a sort of evidence-based idea of what their voices might be. Um, and also the things that hold us to account at council. Um, and it's something that I'm not, you know, I think I've only really sort of um, really understood what designing in a democracy means since starting with council. I think all of the bad things related to that are pretty well known, um, but the good things are probably not talked about as much as they possibly um, could and should be. And so the three um, themes, and Bill, you just stop me if I'm rambling or, or talking for too long. But the three things that I really want to sort of mention are our governance frameworks. Yes, very exciting. And <laughs> our design excellence program and also um, the things that we're doing in the area of sustainability. So I'll start with the first one, which is our governance framework. Um, at the city, I don't, I don't think councils have traditionally done a very good job of listening uh, to their communities. Um, and I feel like I'm at the city of Melbourne at a really wonderful time. Um, we've just launched um, new neighbourhood plans for each of our different um, different precincts. And those are aimed at capturing the voices of everyone who lives, works in or visits those precincts so that we can truly understand the profile aside from just what the demographic percentage is um, of whether they're employed or what age they are, etc. But, you know, um, getting to the nuance of um, are they a carer? Um, what is their particular family situation looking like? Um, what does that mean for how they need to access public space and things like that. Um, so that's been a really great thing that the city's just launched um, this year. Um, the other thing that the city's doing is having its traditional council meetings, not just at town hall, so not just privileging the voices that live in the central city, the loudest voices, but those of our, you know, constituents who live in... Um, 
I guess, um, other parts of the municipality. So we're, we're actively going out to them. Our leadership is going out to them and being very open-armed about, you know, come in and tell us, you know, where can we do better um, and what are we doing well so we can make sure we're doing more of it. So I, I'm very proud <laughs> to be working for such a forward-thinking um, uh, employer. Um, what else? Um, we know that, you're, you know, you can only design as, as well as you know. So we all carry some sort of inherent unconscious bias. We just do. I think it's human nature. And so one of the things I, um, I love about the city is that a lot of research is put into our policies and strategies. And that helps us to remember that uh, that's something that we need to incorporate into, um, into the work that we're doing. Um, those strategies and policies are, you know, written with a huge evidence base, often in partnership with, with, partnership with universities or specific um, institutes. Um, and I'll talk a, a bit about some specifics later. Um, and then the last thing related to um, this governance um, theme is that our offices, um, so, you know, in does as the director of city design, you know, I'm held to account by our customers within the organisation. I'm held to account by councillors who have got different portfolios that, you know, are centred around um, uh, inclusivity or, um, you know, a, a just all range of things that you can think of. They represent all the different sort of concerns um, that people might have um, uh, for a city. So I, I think that that sort of accountability is really helpful and really essential to placemaking justice. And, you know, you all have a voice in that as a resident, a visitor or a, you know, user of the city. Um, so moving on to design excellence, uh, this is a program that has been in gestation for some years, but has really only kicked off uh, late last year with the launch of the Melbourne Design Review Panel and the Design Excellence Advisory Committee. Um, those two program or two forums, they bring together members of the public uh, as well as design experts from all sorts of different areas, um, including academics and they help us to, um, you know, they hold us to account, but also help us to ensure that we're developing programs that are actually world leading or are innovative. Um, so one of them is aimed at um, obviously project review and the other one is aimed at, you know, how do we make the program the best that it can be. Um, um, related to this is the introduction of the Central Melbourne Design Guide. Um, so when we talk about inclusive design, you know, and privileging voices that we don't, we can't necessarily access right now. One of those that's really key to us is the voices of those people who don't exist yet, or like Mon and I, our babies who can't, mine can't talk yet. And, you know, but we need to make sure that their future is one that is um, hopeful. Um, and, you know, that there's choice in it, but that there's also, um, you know, that they they can live in an environment that is can sustain life. And so um, um, the, the Central Melbourne Design Guide, it establishes minimum design conditions for new development so that we're not stuck with legacies that <laughs> meet old needs and can't be adapted. So car parks, for example, at ground level and above, they can no, no longer be minimum clearance heights. They actually have to have a minimum height that can be occupied at a later date. So I think that's a fabulous achievement. Um, um, 
we're also doing a series of M talks at the city called um, the Excellent City Series, and that series is aimed at. Um, fleshing out the nuances of things like um, designing um, design equity, designing equity. What does equity mean in the built environment? And so we, we invited a whole heap of people um, to participate in that panel and we had a really great open audience discussion as well where we talked about, well, what does it really mean to be the carer of a, um, of a disabled child but their disability isn't actually apparent to people? And what does it mean to be a, you know, um, uh, to, to design for intersectionality? Um, what are the lived experiences of people, you know, um, who don't feel that they have equity in the, the built environment? Um, and we had a really great comment from Gahana Wati around, um, you know, a sense of belonging and how enabling a sense of belonging um, is really important to people being able to feel like they can take ownership of um, the public space and the space around them. My last one, I'll try to be really quick with this one. So, obviously, the City of Melbourne has declared a climate and biodiversity emergency. That was in 2019. And so, we're doing a lot of work in this space. Um, we can't do it fast enough, to be honest. Um, and, um, you know, uh, this builds on our urban forest strategy, our, neighbor, uh, our nature in the city strategy, um, and our Birrarung strategy, which recognises that, you know, these things, they, they require investment, they require care, um, and they require repair as well. Um, and we've also joined with the World Wildlife Fund's um, Materials and Embodied, Embodied Carbon Leadership Alliance to look at how we can um, address the topic of embodied carbon in our own projects, but also how we can develop tools and share learnings that might benefit others in that broader network as well and beyond. Um, one last thing, the lighting strategy that, we're, uh, that we just released last year that looks to minimise um, ambient and direct uh, light pollution um, in order to, you know, uh, reduce impacts on biodiversity and, and um, yeah, in the city. So, on forever. I will, I will stop. <laughs> wow. Uh, Jocelyn, that is, with so much to unpack there, I am going to throw a question to Wade in a moment, but I just wanted to, in front of everyone, just commend the Melbourne City Council for everything you've been doing at, in your department, particularly around the establishment of DIAC and design review panels. I think there's so much for so many other local authorities to learn from MCC around this space. And it's so key. So, and your enthusiastic, uh, <laughs> your enthusiasm, yes, but you've also got another enthusiastic chair that sits on those DAC meetings that um, is the Deputy Lord Mayor, Nicholas Reese, who is just a, a champion in this space. And I think it's what every uh, single authority requires. And we've also been to many conferences, this group in the past, where we've listened to others in other cities where you actually need that champion within an authority to actually work with things. So uh, anyway, well done on um, Dieg. So Wei, um, I was going to ask you, um, how do we promote a culture of empathy in our environment? And that's prob probably relevant to what you were just telling us about around the Yarra, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's never easy. So I, I guess I think Joycelyn covered a lot. Um, first of all, it's about to listen and to practice with empathy. Um, you no, know, we, you know, we live in that environment in which we create and the more we need to take care of it. It's probably as simple as that. Um, and I guess uh, what 
could empower it is about working with people that have the same uh, you know, agenda and the same uh, mindset in, in, in that sense. So when I, when I talk about the three projects, it's always back to nature. Back to nature from a point of you know, what does the land tell us? How do we listen to it? And what does the people want? What does the animal wants? What does the insects want? What does the plant needs? Right? And through that, they are in fact our clients. And, through, and, and if we can bring them together, no, um, we create a better environment as a, as a whole. And I guess what I'm also getting towards as well is that you know, the, the like-mindedness is about understanding the place and from a practitioner point of view, you know, uh, Melbourne is quite unique from the, from the point that I would say they are villages of network. So I guess you know, having the right people working together with the common objective, which is perhaps not the client as the one who is paying you, but the client who are, who we serve you know, in terms of the land. That could also be an approach of thinking about it, I guess. And I love before how you mentioned the, you know, the old waterfall. Um, because I think that that's just one of the most special sites in Melbourne and it feels like it's really kind of under-celebrated in this moment. And, um, you know, Jocelyn, when we were having our chat, we were, you were <laughs> saying there's more statues of animals than there are of women. And, um, you know, I think it, it is sort of interesting, this idea of what you, you know, commemorate and what you celebrate and what you memorialise and, you know, the, and what that says about us and, um, and, and right now. And, yeah, I think that... Uh, that waterfall is just is, is, is extremely um, special. Maybe I just at one point to the waterfall. I, I actually learned it from uh, no, from an indigenous uh, advisor, and she brought us there, talk about it, and one important point that she really uh, brought, uh, that she brought out that touches me and the group is the ability to touch water. There's a very deep connection by being able to physically touch. And not being there, you know, in, in this state is quite a distance, uh, not only physically, but metaphorically. So I think, you know, there's a few things that we can start thinking about how we better connect with uh, nature per se. And in fact, acknowledge our history, our past, but still looking forward to build a future. I think that's quite important as well. And so, Amy, I just wanted you to talk about, um, you know, as architects, how we embed um, these ethical principles into the design. So I think there's a couple of things here, um, which is uh, talking about the value of the design brief and being provided by the, the client. And in the, uh, the case of the Family Violence Memorial, we were given a really substantial brief that allowed us at Tender to have a very... Um, sort of good understanding as to how this project could evolve and that, and I think that that was a really positive outcome from the outset of that project. And I think so the idea of the design brief is one that comes with significant consultation with a broad demographic of people and traditional custodians and that then allows this document to be owned by many people from the outset of the project. Um, and one of the other things that was really interesting about uh, the Family Violence Memorial was that there were um, a number of members from the victims and survivors 
um, advisory committee who literally was, have sat in every meeting from schematic design through the process through to construction. And that's been um, a wonderful thing because it's, it's a constant collective conversation that we're having. It's not an exclusive design conversation. It's one that's um, always listening, always um, observing, understanding and, um, and trying to find ways to interpret that. And then I think the other thing I would say as well is the, the value of the narrative in concept design and how we... Um, allow projects to be owned by those who it is for. And so particularly in public work, this is crucial for the community and those who, um, if we talk about family violence, this is a memorial for um, those who have lost um, family members or friends, those who are still suffering as a result of family violence. Um, it's for children who are being educated um, and being exposed to this issue. It's for the broader community to understand the, you know, this as a societal issue that sits within our city. Um, so it's it's a big thing, but that in saying that us as designers are always wanting to give the agency back to those who are going to occupy it. And so the narrative in design is really important. We often sort of talk about place, which is incredibly important. The geometry of the um, memorial is born from place and the relationships to its adjacencies, um, but also about the idea of how do people feel safe and secure within this space. What is it that, how do they feel comforted within the space? Um, and so there's a there's a very thin steel wall because there's an acknowledgement of um, uh, the idea of fragility and strength. This thing needs to be robust, as robust as the, the way that this issue is sort of being communicated to us. But it also has to be delicate in the way that it communicates that. So there's, um, there's a garden that's being held by a wall and so there's a series of um, uh, interventions that happen within this landscape that all have not one purpose but two, a minimum of two purposes. And the reason for that is that, first of all, in the design process, nothing can be extracted from the design. And the second reason is that it allows people to um, own that narrative and engage with that narrative in more than one way. And so when we're talking from day one about the ideas of the design, it then allows others to take that narrative away and own it. And we see that as being incredibly important way of giving, giving design back to, to, the, to the public. Maybe I'll jump in. Thanks, Amy. Uh, we'll jump in and talk about Melbourne, uh, Melbourne City again, uh, and maybe unpack uh, the blurred boundary condition a little bit. And I might throw to Ben after this. But uh, my own personal observations is that we we have a fantastic city. We love it. Um, we, our laneway culture, uh, the blurred boundaries in Melbourne, I think, uh, are, are amazing. But uh, from our perspective, as uh, participants in an industry where we need to continue to readapt existing heritage fabric. We need to continue to populate our laneway culture, which is not an easy thing to do because it's not just as simple as standing and observing um, 
graffiti artwork, but also should it be engaging with activation or shouldn't it? There's that question that uh, occurs all the time, all the undercroft areas that we have, which we're lucky, we don't have that many of them. Many other cities have quite a few and um, it becomes a subterranean world of whether you're going underground or whether you're going above ground. So we're very, we're very fortunate in Melbourne. We probably have the best street life, I think, of any city. So the public realm and that porosity and that interface that occurs on the ground is something we have to maintain. And it's not easy to do. Um, so a blurred boundary, every time uh, we within an industry have to uh, respond and build something new or readapt existing uh, heritage fabric, we're challenged by the prescriptive nature of planning rules uh, and the prescriptive nature of so many other overlays that may all be in conflict, whether you're dealing with a utility or you're dealing with Heritage Victoria. So it's not an easy space to navigate, but one thing that's for certain is that by uh, Melbourne City Council, for example, allowing us with DAC and design review panels to actually have this grey area, if we can re refer to it as a grey you know, boundary and a grey uh, idea about being able to navigate through, then we as designers and participants in an industry can uh, create much better outcomes. We always need to leverage off a precinct. We always need to leverage off what's next door, what's above you, what's, up, what's below you, and actually merge all that together. Um, as architects in particular, we, uh, we never just work to a simple four-sided boundary to say, here's your task, now you deliver and make it work and make a great place out of it. That's not how you make a great place. How you make a great place is actually to, um, like Glenn Merck has always told us, you know, touch the ground lightly, actually sit within your adjacency, your landscape and make it work. And so um, this blurred boundary is a, a real big interest of mine. So Ben, do you want to touch on that any further? Yeah, sure, Bill. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's really relevant to the project that we're working on and, and this idea of the territory. Um, but also Wei's comments about, um, you know, rethinking this notion of nature. And I think traditionally we have maybe a, a sort of idea that nature is over there and we're here. There's this kind of di sort of distinction or detachment. Uh, nature is something we frame or we look at or we control or we extract from and culture and humans are over there. And I think that, you know, that's changing and, and certainly that's changing within our perspective of our practice in the fact that sort of rethink this idea of a, uh, nature to be more of a kind of an idea of ecology where we're sort of embedded within, um, you know, nature and landscapes, sort of within and around us, not just out there. Um, but I suppose that's where this idea of the boundary is also important in, in terms of our analysis of the site that we were working on. A very broad and large-scale analysis of this idea of the territory sort of led to an understanding of where to site the building in particular because there was all sorts of really important contingencies and intersections of different landscape and natural conditions that meant that um, the, the siding of the building became really important, but also the access. So it was actually a building in the round that was designed as a circle, which doesn't happen a huge amount, but it allowed for all sorts of different access ways, pathways, walkways to, to kind of enable a, a sort of being within the environment rather than something that was sort of detached and, and, and outside the environment. And I think that that's probably related in a sense to this idea of place because I think um, 
rather than um, this this sort of old notion of nature. It's it's something that we socially construct by being within an ecology or something like that. And so I think that what we were trying to get at is that architecture could be embedded within, um, within a natural environment if it was done sensitively and successfully. Um, but it could also enable a sort of um, ongoing um, management and maintenance of, of the environment that I think is really important, that people on country and people within landscape is actually a really important aspect to, you know, our kind of care and, and, and conservation of landscape. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, all of this is, is really important with respect to placemaking, especially that the idea of placemaking is also a sort of socially constructed thing that we do within an environment or within a landscape, not from the outside, but sort of collectively within. And I think um, more and more as, you know, I guess in our practice that we're starting to do sort of bigger um, projects and um, projects that do have an influence on, you know, large community groups and stakeholders, I guess, it becomes more and more obvious uh, the personal agency that you have within a large, um, you know, around the boardroom table, um, you know, to be um, pushing for these things and to make sure that they're not overlooked or bypassed or, you know, managed out or, you know, any of these um, really common um, problems that we see and that, you know, a lot of organisations do have these very um, robust uh, policies around um, inclusivity and, um, you know, sustainability and things. Um, but we see that in the end, uh, they are kind of whittled away. And so by actually just being there and as designers, by having those, um, having the conviction, we see that um, we have the capacity to influence a lot. And so I guess we just wanted to wrap up um, by talking about, um, you know, your own sense of, you know, personal agency and um, your story essentially. So, uh, do you want to start? <laughs> oh. uh, just civic duty to the, the environment. Uh, the power of the collective, I think, is um, very important to acknowledge every day and uh, to try and find ways to allow the collective to have um, influence and uh, momentum? Um, maybe uh, not to be simplistic, but to embrace complexity and um, embrace the layered um, voices and, and senses of meaning and ideas that are present in, in sight and in place. Um, and yeah, embrace that. I agree with all of that, um, but if I have to add something, I guess it's about enabling um, our champions, you know, people who will be design, design champions, like the Deputy Lord Mayor uh, that Bill referred to before. Maybe I'll jump in as well about my personal views on this. Um, I'm about building less and uh, working more with our heritage fabric. Uh, Melbourne, I, I'll just touch on one last thing about it. Uh, there's, there's plenty of laneways in Melbourne that are still um, undiscovered, as in their back of house, they're full of big bins and they're stinky and they're probably uh, not great places to visit. However, 
Um, and there's there's other precincts that are built right up against it. And I won't name any of them. There's, there's plenty of them around. But they are an untapped goldmine of uh, an opportunity to create great place within Melbourne. And the reason that it can be effective is that we shouldn't underestimate the revealing of heritage fabric from the rear. So what, what happened um, many, many years ago in terms of how they've built there, just the extent of bluestone, split-face bluestone plinths that exist, the ornate brickwork, the punched openings that work, they're all just magnificent. And it's a shame that we have to find a way together with all the utilities that I talked on about earlier if we had great waste management systems and great engagement with other parties to actually say, hey, here's a, here's a thing we can do in Melbourne and eliminate that and actually reveal this just beauty of uh, the rear of heritage buildings and actually sometimes we have to knock down recent work that's very close to it that's either hard up against it or built to the boundary opposite a very narrow laneway. But there's elevated conditions and ground plane conditions that can reveal just this incredible streetscape of fabric that we have that is just undiscovered. It's all there and it's undiscovered because the bins are in the way and no one's prepared to walk through it. But they're all north-south, they all get great light and one day I have a vision that um, it's going to be wonderful. Anyway, that's my personal agency. <laughs> Given, given we have a, such a great intimate group, I thought, I, I'm not aware whether we normally have a Q&A session here, but we've got time. Would it be worth um, taking some questions from the floor in light of um, everything you've heard today? Thank you very much. Um, hi, Jocelyn. Um, really enjoyed looking at the work of the City of Melbourne for the Say It Loud exhibit. There was so much diversity. I'm Corley, by the way, in case you didn't recognize me. Um, I just wanted to, this is a question that I've been grappling with. I think about design, design equity and agency, and I think about my own family who live in Werribee, and think about how much they think the city is for them or about them. And I'm wondering how, as a city, we, or as architects and built uh, environment professionals, we start grappling with this idea of how the things that we build give people agency and also make them feel like they belong in certain places. How you do it, I guess, is my question. Oh, my goodness, it's such a fabulous question. Um, look, I'm, uh, my family, um, uh, you know, ha we've come from the western suburbs of Melbourne. I know what it's like to, you know, come from a suburban background where there's not a lot on offer. I mean, this is, you know, a long, long time before you. And so... Um, uh, I guess I bring the personal experience, my personal experience into the city and my personal experience is about how do we enable access to as much of the benefits of the city as possible without requiring people to have wealth to, to, to do that. And I think that's how we make people um, feel welcome is that we provide amenity, we provide opportunities to engage um, with place and with people, um, but also with narrative and to learn something um, and to, you know, grow and develop through an interaction with the city um, that is not reliant on privilege um, and which is also, you know, I guess in an environment that is safe for them. So I think, I think they're the things that, you know, I, I think we do it really well in some areas of the city and I think in other areas, um, you know, we could do with a lot of improvement. But I, I, my motto is there's always room for improvement. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. 
Does anyone else have a question? Come on, you must have a question. There's no silly question. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Catherine. Um, we're actually doing a talk here later on age-friendly design in the city and challenging the idea that, in fact, you need age-friendly and that age-friendly is a euphemism for old age and, in fact, it, chronology is a pretty poor metric, really. Um, but aside from that, it actually goes to the last question and what Bill was saying is that I think in breaking down the city is that sense of welcome. My mode of transport is my feet and understanding that you can nick through, as my grandmother would have said, that the laneways are there to actually take you to places that you didn't know you could get to fast. Um, went on a walking tour with uh, Professor Alison Young the other day around the Acker Precinct. Again, that's a great area that previously I wouldn't have gone into or even known about. I don't have a lot of money. I live down St Kilda Road. And it's actually in the discovery of what's free. And I think there's a body of work to be done around understanding the value of the city without money and actually doing that as a campaign. Um, because I think there's loads and loads and loads, but because we all think in a capitalist economic model, that we tend to think about the city as being only available to those with money. And it's the institutions, and it's great that the NGV became free, for example. There are loads of ways that we can think about it, but it's actually about adding that voice of what is free, what can you nick through, what can you discover, that ah moment, and getting people to actually enjoy the ah moments and the wow moments and the, the waterfall discovery when I discovered that, that was beautiful. So I think it's a, a consciousness of actually asking everybody from outside what it is, you know, the child that can hop on and off curbsides, you know, that's acceptable. So it's a, to me it's a mentality as much as it is a design thing. I challenge you to bring it forward. I love that. Thank you. And I will. <laughs> I will. I'll, do, I'll work on that. No, I love that too. Like the fact I, that the NGV almost became a rich uncle or auntie and allowed you to go and swim in their pool for free uh, <laughs> is kind of amazing. Um, I might jump in as well. I think that's um, very insightful and um, great to hear that your mode of transport is by foot. My, mine is by cycle, but it will eventually become by foot. Um, we undertook a parliamentary inquiry recently on um, better apartment standards and um, we've been advocating, at the Institute we've been advocating on two fronts in particular, uh, actually three fronts I'll talk about, many fronts but I'll talk about three that are related to your question. One is um, within, and we, this is sort of linking into the blurred boundary issue again, rather than having a new bit of work that is housing people, we don't look at having boundaries but in fact it, we look to opportunities to actually get the public more engaged within within a site. So breaking down the boundary, boundaries between what's um, private and what's public is a, a priority. Uh, two, it's about um, making sure that the communal spaces and the linkages back into private property or back up on top of buildings are actually for everyone, if it's possible. Uh, but that's something we should strive for. And three, and this is very personal, to, and dear to my heart because I grew up in an apartment for, for 20 years and raised kids and pets, the whole lot. 
So I have very personal interests in why um, multi-residential apartments are so static and that they're not um, for, uh, not, don't, don't represent an alternative form of living, but therefore need to be flexible. So the, yes, they should suit a young couple. Yes, they should suit um, two people that want to rent in it. Um, but they also need to suit um, allowing mods to occur to it so that you can have uh, a greater longevity through that. And that's not easy to do, but we need to do that because it's, uh, it's a form of living that is just taking over uh, with respect to affordability. It's, we, not everyone can have a house on land in, in urban Melbourne. Um, so we have to improve the livability of these buildings. Any other questions? Hello, my name's Nikki. Um, thank you so much for the talk. It was really wonderful to hear about the projects and ideas that you're all working on. My question is around um, how do you kind of negotiate or reconcile some of these new values like empathy and like listening within the like very restrictive or more um, scheduled, I guess, um, processes that you, you also need to work within. Um, yeah, and, and the kind of need for those things as in the, in the paradigm of the need for evidence-based um, knowledge as well. tackle it from a council perspective. I mean, we're so lucky that a lot of the decision-making at council is actually done publicly. So the, the decision-making for a lot of um, uh, development, um, large-scale significant development applications is dis discussed by councillors in a future Melbourne committee. And you can actually attend those meetings. You can actually submit comments to those meetings. Um, and they, you know, they must be considered in the councillors' discussions and in the officer um, deliberations and advice. So I, I'd have to say if you're really passionate about something in any municipality, then submit, you know, uh, submit something about it because that's how it then gets recorded in paper and enters into the consciousness of not just the councillors but an entire uh, municipality. Um, Yeah, I think um, sort of getting back to how do you sort of negotiate in a way from your question, sort of understanding the idea that we obviously have a rule book and how do you negotiate around that rule book. And I think uh, this is where listening and understanding prior to doing anything is really absolutely imperative uh, because we need to be designing through understanding, not through assumption. And so I think that through understanding something, you then can start to sort of question things and uh, not necessarily their validity, but more where they sit in relation to, you know, a holistic kind of understanding of something. And I think that's when you can start to give agency to particular things and talk to them in an informed way because of 
the, the listening and understanding and research that you've done uh, prior to getting to that position. And I think that's when you can, if I'm correct in understanding your question, you can start to sort of manoeuvre around those boundaries and make them more curved than straight. And, you know, it's, um, yeah. And I guess, um, you know, at Wawawa, we were really passionate um, about the under, you know, uh, the under kind of um, celebration of the Yarra, for example. And, um, you know, I speak a lot around personal agency because I think that one person can um, have a huge impact on so many things. And, you know, we, uh, as architects, wanted to do city, city shaping projects and no one was going to give us the opportunity to do that necessarily. And so we just said, well, we're going to do it on our own. And, um, you know, we partnered... Uh, you know, I sat on the board of Yarra Swim Co for a long time, found collective, you know, a collective um, group of advocates and political strategists and environmentalists who were all so um, passionate about the Yarra and, um, you know, the motto was toward, move towards a swimmable Yarra. And, you know, we, we ran that campaign really hard for years, since 2014. Um, and, you know, I feel that it did have a huge influence on um, the policies that City of Melbourne has today. And, you know, I think that we just started that because we were passionate about it. And, um, you know, so I think that you have the capacity to shape policy uh, even as, you know, a, an architecture student or a recent grad. Um. That, that's a really important one. The idea of, and we're seeing it live now through um, obviously these issues that are being bashed around in society at the moment relating to gender and equality and it is about understanding that policy exists but how do we need to read it and change it and understanding in changing policy we can make a, a huge difference within the, the world that we live in and, and we've seen that, you know, in uh, with Grace Thames and just it's, it's really important to understand that these aren't rigid documents. They're documents that are written at a particular time, a particular place, and they need to constantly be reviewed and challenged, you know, and, and that, as Mon's saying, you know, it's, it's, um, it, is a, it can be an individual that then comes in with the collective to, to try and change what we have in front of us. And it's a really important thing to keep remembering that things aren't rigid. They might seem rigid, but we, we can have the, the power to change them. Thanks, Amy. If there are no other questions, uh, we've reached our time. Uh, maybe we draw to a close. I'd just like to thank everyone for attending uh, for Placemaking Justice, uh, this panel discussion. I really appreciate uh, you being here and um, I hope it was insightful for you. Um, thank you very much. And thank you everyone on the panel. listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.